0: I have this rule that uh, every great movie has a goat and and she found a quote of a director saying never put a goat in your movie because they're very hard (laughs) to train because they can't act. And I was just like, no, you always put a goat in your movie. That's how you know it's good. Hello and
1: welcome to Peach Pod, the Georgia Politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing?
0: Oh, I'm doing great, Kyle. It's the inevitable end of the semester, uh, frantic period for me. So, you know, as as the political world keeps on churning and turning, uh, so do I. So, I, I'm I'm excited to be here and to gig away from finals for a little bit. I was gonna say
1: you don't get a break at all,
0: do you? No, I yeah yeah I don't I don't really sleep. Kyle, that's not that's not something I do. It's something I need. It's just something I don't do.
1: Who needs sleep? I don't know. Our our new our president elect Joe Biden is really interested in you sleeping because he's giving us relatively boring and competent picks in his cabinet.
0: Yeah, I, I'm happy about that because I, I need a uh... I need some boring cabinet picks that aren't going to pursue policies that will give me anxiety because I have enough of that already, naturally. So I don't need any, uh, you know, enhancing cabinet members.
1: Well, we are going to keep our focus on Georgia today. Uh, We are now watching as things are heating up in the runoff for the two U.S. Senate races. And we're kind of on a a low boil still of claims from President Trump that uh, the election was rigged and in sort of half-hearted attempts to try to overturn the results of the election. Uh, has he claimed that has, Georgia recently? I don't know if he's, cla- I feel like he keeps claiming Michigan and then Michigan keeps putting out numbers that say Biden won. I saw somebody say that uh, Biden has won Michigan so many times that he now legally has to change his name to Ohio State. So <laughs> that's what's going but on much. up there. Um, but you're part of what this Sort of slow burn of, of Trump whining about the election outcome has created in Georgia is uh, this environment where Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger has been aggressively defending the administration of the election amidst the them certifying the results, completing the hand recount and now and now this week, the week that we're recording, uh, the Trump campaign has asked for one more final recount of Georgia um, as they are allowed to do under the law. Um, but it's going to give us the same result that the first two counts did. So, you know, spoiler alert. But it's been interesting to watch Raffensberger move politically amidst all this. So we're going to talk about the moves that he's been making. And then we're going to turn our attention to the runoffs that are heating up for the, the two Senate seats. Um, this has quickly become just a amped up version of what we saw during the general election. It is a mudslinging fest between all of the candidates involved. But it creates for an interesting dynamic, I think, for how this unique runoff uh, may turn out in January. And then we do have one more runoff that's going to come before that. That is a runoff in the Athens area district attorney seat. Um, So we're going to talk about who the candidates are in that race and and what it says for Luke about uh, democratic enthusiasm in the Athens area, an area that underperformed a little bit in the general election in 2020. But let's start here with Brad Raffensperger. Luke, Brad Raffensperger has been a fascinating character for the last couple of weeks, and um, Most notably, he has been aggressively defending his administration of the 2020 election. He's been fighting back claims from Republicans that the results were fraudulent and that somehow Democrats stole this election from President Trump in Georgia. And unique, I think, among Republicans that we've seen in recent years, he's been incredibly vocal and willing to challenge the president and people on the president's team in a really direct and public fashion, as opposed to you know most Republicans that you've seen, particularly Republicans on Capitol Hill, who, when they get asked about inflammatory statements from the president or tweets from the president, they often claim that they haven't seen them at all. Raffensberger has seen all of these complaints, and he's ready to fight about them. Most notably to me, uh, he is now basically blaming Trump's loss in Georgia on Trump. He has said in multiple interviews that there were 24,000 Republican voters who voted in the absent who voted absentee in the primary and who did not vote in the general election. And Raffensberger is saying that because Trump raised so much skepticism about absentee voting and told people that Democrats were going to steal the election via absentee ballots that this dissuaded Republican voters who previously voted absentee from voting in the general election. And those 24,000 votes, that's a bigger number. That's almost twice the votes that Biden won Georgia by. So Raffensperger is basically saying that Trump, it's your fault, you lost our state, not ours. Um, He's also said that Republican criticism of him is retaliation, because he did not openly support the president during the general election. Um, You know, it's no secret that Raffensperger is a Republican, that he wants Republicans to win, but he did do, I think, what is the bare minimum for secretaries of state in states across our country, and that is to be at least facially neutral during the elections that he was administering, much more than Brian Kemp did. Luke, what do you make of this aggressive effort from Raffensperger to really directly combat his critics and defend his administration of the election?
0: I think the most shocking thing is just how shocking it is. You know, the fact that someone just standing up for facts and common sense is something that feels so incredibly different and reassuring. And, you know, it's just a sad place to be. And I feel like Brad Raffensperger deserves a lot of credit and he deserves a lot of, you know, admiration for, you know, being able to do the bare minimum Which is, you know, just—it's not—it's not really a great claim to fame for Brad Raffensperger as much as it is a just unending condemnation of every single other Republican who has failed to do this. I think Raffensperger is in a unique position, though, since at least to like my knowledge, he is one of the few Republicans who finds himself in this, like, really unique position where he, like, where Trump is criticizing something that happened that, like, he is directly responsible for. Because if you play the Trump argument out, what Brad Raffensperger would have to say is, yes, Donald Trump, you are right, I am such a crappy Secretary of State, I allowed massive voter fraud to happen in the state of Georgia to the point where you lost this election or Brad Raffensperger, like, admits, you caught us, like, I'm part of a Democrat cabal <laughs> that worked to, you know, get get Biden the state of Georgia. And, like, he's not going to say either of those things, at least, you know, like, I don't think there'd be many people who, if their job and the way they did their job was so directly implicated, that they wouldn't, like, defend themselves. And so Brad Raffensperger is, I actually think being kind of smart and savvy about this, is the fact that he realized pretty quickly is like i'm going to have to defend myself and rather than tiptoeing around the issue he has is just been a solid rock wall uh arguing that he didn't everything he was supposed to do they follow the law they counted all the you know all the uh, they counted everything properly and i mean to that extent Again, the bar is so incredibly low that this feels like some great heroic, you know, call uh, from from Raffensperger to just like stand up for himself. But like, I mean, in a lot of ways, that's really all he's doing is he's just standing up for himself because the alternative is I'm an incompetent fool.
1: So that I think naturally raises the question of why other Republicans have not stood up for themselves and the the. Easiest explanation is that they fear political repercussions from going against the president. And the most notable of those is the fact that this is the kind of stuff that could fuel a Republican primary challenge to Raffensperger. And given the high profile nature of this event, this is the election that Donald Trump will lose. This, it seems like a layup to assume that there are Republicans who believe that Raffensperger is vulnerable and are going to take a shot at him for the Secretary of State's primary in 2022.
0: Yeah, I mean, unquestionably, someone is going to challenge him. Like, I, I will be shocked beyond my core if somebody doesn't challenge him because even relatively popular Republican statewide officials usually get, like, even just, like, a random guy or thing running against them. So for Raffensperger to basically be one of the most vocal Republicans in the country to oppose Trump and the fact that like this race is two years from now, I, I, I mean, someone's not going to forget it. And even if it's a joke, it will be someone who will probably raise some money in anger because there's going to be some Trump supporters who won't forgive this.
1: Yeah. I mean that to me, that's the interesting test that we're coming up on here is this is a primary that'll happen, you know, about a year and a half after Trump leaves office it'll be an interesting test of how long Trump's grip on the party lasts and whether or not there are up and coming Republicans who will run for office in the next cycle, who can effectively harness voters enthusiasm for the president and hold Republican officials accountable and beat them in a primary. Raffensperger, I think, you know, because there there was a quieter way for him to kind of push back. You know, Governor Kemp's been interesting to watch in all this because he's been pretty quiet, but he did uh, certify the results of the election. He he took sort of he took one of the final procedural steps there, and then he and his spokesman actually put out a statement saying. Uh, laying out the specific statute in Georgia code that requires them to do this. And they basically kind of quietly said, we did this because that's the law. And that's what we're going to do. Raffensperger took a much more vocal approach, a much more combative approach. So he seems to think he has a good shot at beating back any kind of primary challenge. To me, this sets up this really interesting test of Republicans have declined to go against the president because they think it will cost them politically. And that trend, I think, has led to this race to the bottom in the party about this unwillingness to hold fellow party members accountable for any number of things that make their party unpopular. Raffensberger is going to fight back against that criticism. If he wins, that's potentially a path forward for Republicans who want to pull their party out of this mess, some evidence that they can do that and still win elections. And it would, I think, signify the potential for a shift from the messy politics that we've been in the last few years. But Luke, that is by no means guaranteed. Raffensperger could get walloped in a Republican primary. And then he would be case in point for why Republicans likely would continue to refuse to push back against this wing of their party.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I also think this is a fairly good test for what you were talking about because unlike some of the other Georgia statewide officers, like is actually a really good campaigner. Like he did some really smart things and he is very aggressive in his campaigns in like the good way of just like really like knowing what it takes to win office. I mean, I was really impressed with him uh, last time and, you know, obviously he successfully defeated John Barrow, who is one of the best politicians and campaigners in the country when he was, you know, defending his really, really hard to defend seat for much longer than I imagine many other politicians would have been able to do it. And so, I mean, like he's beating off really hard challenges before and he survived a runoff, you know, like he survived a runoff too. So, I mean, Raffensperger really has a lot of experience. And so if, if it, like if anything matters you know right like if we if there if anything matters and it's not just the echo chamber and if like campaigning works and like having smart messaging works and all that kind of stuff like Raffensburger, I imagine will be in a really good position to fend off a crazy challenger who you know raises a bunch of money and grassroots support just saying that he stole the election from Trump like like I feel like that will be a good matchup of these two forces in the party because I, I, I might be wrong here, but if someone, I mean, there's really like two types of challengers. I imagine Raffensberger will face and they are equally dangerous for him. And, and one of them would be a, you know, regular Republican who is just trying to take advantage of, of the situation and rung against him and basically just says, oh, you know, 2020 was such a mess. Brad did so many bad things and Trump was unhappy and just like make veiled illusions. Or, like, pure queuing on, pure Marjorie Taylor Greene, insane person. And, you know, the Republican Party would be a lot more concerned about the insane person than just some other rung of the mill Republican who is just making these attacks to win a political race. And so I think, like, all of those dynamics, putting a blender, will be very, very interesting to see because I think it is a very, very clear illustration of something I've referenced before, something we're going to talk about in the next segment, of just like, where is the Republican Party of Georgia going? Because if Raffensperger can't survive either form of those challenges, then they might be going to a very politically dangerous place for them, uh, especially considering the fact that Joe Biden won the state of Georgia. Uh, and, And he did it really by emphasizing a return to normalcy and getting away from craziness, which again, Raffensperger has also been emulating. So if anything, if there's, if there's someone I want to give the award for, like, smartest political actor in Georgia right now, it's Raffensperger, because it seems like he understands the fact that, like, people want things to work and for people to, like, calm things down. And I think to a large extent, that's what he's been focusing on and has been successful in getting plogits on both sides of the political aisle for that.
1: The big challenge is that the people who want that return to normalcy are voting for Democrats right now. Um, Right. In a preview of other coming attractions, one thing Raffensperger has done in this criticism against his Republican opponents is he's also tried to draw Democrats into this. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post where he defended all the moves that they've made in terms of election administration during this year. And then he also took shots at, at Democrats, including referencing Stacey Abrams' refusal to concede the 2018 governor's race. He has taken shots at all the voting rights activists that have uh, filed lawsuits against the state, suing over the state's process for administering elections. These claims, as we talked about before, are much different than the claims that are being brought forward by Republicans in their efforts to overturn the results of the election. These are ones that have evidence in some instances, they've led to settlements between the state and activists. Um, but at the same time, Raffensperger is, is attacking Democrats over those things. And he's saying that uh, Democratic activists and their lawsuits basically wrote the playbook for attacking Georgia's election system that Republicans are now using. Again, conflating these things, you know, I don't think that you know, I don't think that this is entirely accurate, but it is a political strategy for him. And that to me lends to this question of, we're going to see in the next legislative session, Republican efforts to probably tighten up policies around absentee ballots, make them more onerous to comply with other efforts that would make it harder for Democrats to vote in this state. There's going to be some energy behind that Barry Fleming who's the chairman of the judiciary committee he wrote an op-ed in the Augusta Chronicle saying that the legislature was going to address issues related to absentee balloting during the next session and democrats are they're going to criticize these moves these moves are going to be designed to make it harder for particularly for black people in this state to vote that's not going to be surprising at all but what is worrisome to me is that this fracas put together by Republicans to undermine confidence in the elections, but doing so without any evidence and and with a lot of bullshit claims. I'm concerned that that undermines future Democratic criticisms that are much more grounded, in fact, that are much more evidence based, and that are about making sure that people have the right to vote in this state. That Raffensberger will be able to just kind of wave some of these away and be like, I criticized Republicans, now I'm criticizing Democrats, and they're all wrong about my great administration of elections. Luke, what do you think about that sort of forthcoming dynamic we're going to see in the next legislative session and in the lead up to the 2022 election?
0: <laughs> well, I... Uh... Tal, you just asked a Luke Boggs question in the sense that you put so much in there that, like, I want to respond to every single thing, and now I'm going to have to desperately try to remember all of it. So the first thing I want to hit on is I agree with you that Raffensberger's characterization of what Democrats said in 2018 and what specifically Abrams said in refusing to concede the election— I, I agree that he's mix, mischaracterizing those claims and that Abrams had lots of good reasons to uh, make the um, diction choice that she did You know, in saying that she didn't concede. I actually agree with Raffensperger on one thing, though, is and this is a place where I think Democrats need to be very smart and very careful with their branding, which is one thing I am. Constantly ragging on the Democratic Party and its allies for because I don't disagree with him. Because most people do not read the full article of the AJC. Most people don't read the Washington Post or New York Times and read multiple articles and watch multiple news segments and listen to this podcast about like what Abrams said and how it's different from Trump, you watch the like 30 second clip on your local news or you see a headline. And if you look at the headlines from 18, I haven't done this recently, but I'm sure if I looked some up and I looked at some headlines of what Trump was claiming happened in Georgia, they'd be really damn similar, I think. And so the fact that Abrams is like, they sold this election from me, you know, from that 30 second clip you see and the fact that trump is like they stole this election from me i think that should not be discounted that the way that that gets characterized is not dissimilar it's really not it's not the same in facts but you know a lot unfortunately a lot of political arguments the facts come later and the characterization comes first and I, so i think democrats would be ill-advised to ignore the implications of what Raffensberger is saying, because I actually think he has a point there. Now, I think he's placing the blame in the wrong place because it's not, the, you know, it's not Democrat's fault that they, uh, uh, you know, covered these things the way they did.
1: And real quick, the headline in the AJC from November 16th, 2018, the uh, day that Stacey Abrams made her speech where she did not concede it says Stacey Abrams. This is a quote from her. I will not concede because the erosion of our democracy is not right.
0: Right. I mean, if Trump was more well spoken, he would have said something like that, you know, instead of all caps tweeting at four a.m. And so, like, I want to hit on that because I think that's true. The other thing is, I think you're you're underestimating the tricky political situation that Raffensberger will find himself in, I think. I, I think he has been pretty adept and pretty partisan. So I, I imagine, as you suggest, he will find a way out of this problem he's created for himself. But if the... Assembly comes back and basically says, oh, there's all this voter fraud and all these voting problems, which, you know, will be short for a bunch of Democrats voting and we don't like that. Um, like Ravensburger will either have to just like stay silent as they say these things or agree with them, which again would put him back in this Trump problem. If they try to pass a bill, that's just a lot of crazy restrictions on voting. And they say the reason we're doing this is voter fraud like Raffensperger will be in a pretty weird situation because if he agrees with them, then he has to say that like, I did something wrong. And I mean, frankly, and I've discussed this before and giving Raffensperger's credit, like Voging is working in Georgia right now, better than it has in a long time. And it would be, really, really foolish of us to go back on that. I know the Republicans will because that's what they do. Because unfortunately, democracy is not a tenant of the Republican Party in its current formation. I mean, North Carolina is probably the best example of this. I mean, they're going to do everything they can to slow this train down. But I think Raffensperger will have a more difficult time than the rest of the party in doing that because he's plainly put himself out there in saying that like Georgia elections work really well right now and there's very little frog and so I mean he's just he's being so so inflexible in this argument in a way that I'm very appreciative of and happy of because it's true that when the Republicans inevitably say, There's all this frog and we have to get to the bottom of it, if he agrees with them, he's just basically saying, I was lying (laughs) course you know two three months uh when he was saying that trump did not have this election stolen from him and and i think that will really open up some very valuable arguments for democrats in this because the margins in the state house grew a little tighter and especially looking at how this this runoff election goes i mean i don't think republicans will we'll be in a good political place if one of the big initiatives they're pushing through to lots of uh, consternation from the Democrats is trying to make it really hard to vote in the state of Georgia because that will be their only reason to do it because there won't be a easy way to both side this because Raffensperger is already on the side of Georgia elections do not have fraud.
1: I think, I don't know, I, I disagree in that I think what you'll see if the legislature tries to make it harder for people to vote in the next session is you'll see Raffensperger be pretty quiet because you can't force Raffensperger to comment on what the legislature is doing and he'll sort of step back and he'll say, you know, we ran a good election last time and we're going to work with the legislature to strengthen uh, the secure protections that have been in place and that I used to great effect during the last election. I mean, I you'll just turn him into sort of mealy mouth political statements that don't take one side or the other. And because he's not a member of the legislature, you know, he is not directly involved in the process that we'll see to make voting laws tighter in the state. The other thing I think you could see is, you know, they're going to go after the absentee ballot process. And that's one where I think he... You know, would have to walk a finer line because Republicans were upset with him for making absentee ballots so easy to access for the June 9th primary. Um, But the thing, I could see them sort of pursuing some other strategies too. I wouldn't be surprised if there was an effort to uh, prohibit counties from using large early voting centers like we saw with the. The Hawks and the Falcons arenas being used uh, for early voting sites. I wouldn't be surprised if they leverage funding in some way to encourage counties to consolidate precincts and have sort of one large precinct as opposed to smaller ones that are e- more easily accessible, particularly for people who, uh, you know, don't have a car or have kind of limited access to transportation. Um, and I could see them going back to the signature verification process, which is currently the subject of basically pure conspiracy theories by Republicans, but is one that, you know, it's easy for Raffensperger to say anything that strengthens signature verification is good for security. And he's for that. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't see this putting him at odds with the legislature quite so much. I think he could kind of dance around it. And the thing that I worry about is if Democrats look at these things and say, oh, this is making it harder for people to vote, Republicans are just going to say we're trying to increase security. I don't know. I just, yeah, like, I mean, so, they don't have so this is, this institutional is power.
0: Where Yeah, where where I, I come back to disagree. Because, like, Raffensperger was very central to the push for us to have the voting system we have now. And... Like, people don't just get to say things and they go unchallenged. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, what's really going to matter is who has the votes, right? And the Republicans have the votes as in who has the majorities in both chambers. But the margins aren't tight enough that they could find themselves losing the votes. Because if they are spending the next two months, because Trump's not going to give up until they drag him out on the 20th, like if they spend all this time arguing and relitigating and doing all these recounts and saying everything, we did a great job, stop giving us crap. It's going to be really hard for them to implement all of these changes that will be unpopular to then, you know, say like there, there's no reason there's no justification besides like, we don't want more. We don't want people to vote because the thing that like people forget when they are, you know, news reporters and prognosticators and activists, is that Republicans like absentee ballots too. They did it in this election, big asterisk there, but generally speaking, especially in Georgia, they like absentee ballots. When Trump's not on the ballot and not screaming about the absentee ballots being a frog, I kind of think that's going to return to normal, especially because Republican consultants like to get people to vote by absentee ballot in the same way that Democrat consultants do. And I got a bunch of mail about how Trump needed me to vote by absentee for him, right? Like So like I, I, I am a lot more skeptical that they're going to be super eager to make it really hard to vote by absentee because until this election, it had been tremendously beneficial for them. The other thing is, too, I currently live in Oglethorpe County, which is a big rural county. It's huge. And one of the big things I hear that people complain about is the fact that they consolidated their precincts uh, from, you know, having one in each of the little towns in the county to only three. And that a lot of people are pissed off about that. And, I, I, you know, I don't by telling you it's a rural county in Georgia, I don't think you need to look up the fact that, like, it voted for Donald Trump by big numbers. So, like, there will be pushback from them from their voters and they actually are getting to a point where they might start hurting their voters more than us (laughs) if they keep this crap up. And so that's the thing that I think is going to be really interesting here is because the methods of voting and the things you can do to hurt uh one party's chances are starting to bleed over a little bit in the state of georgia i still think they can do it because they're devious and they'll find a way you know they always do but i I just don't think it's going to be this like easy fight where they're going to walk in and they're going to say Voger fraud Voger fraud Voger fraud we need more security and the ajc is going to say republicans say there's massive Voger fraud obviously there is like no like they're going to say without evidence Republicans, they say, massive overfrog, right? And that's not going to be a very popular move for them, I think. Um, and so that that's the thing I, I, I'm just highlighting now that I think should be taking into consideration and not just like throw up our hands and give them this ability to uh, change the laws in a negative way by go ahead and uh, actively fighting for it.
1: That'll definitely be something to watch. And I think it'll be one of the earliest tests for Democrats who remain in the minority in the state to try to capitalize on increased enthusiasm and increased support. But that that increased enthusiasm and support did not result in them having institutional power in the legislature. But if they can basically wield that support in their statewide victory as a as a threat, for 2022. And Republicans believe that this is a state that's still shifting and not and not a one off for Biden. um, It'll, you know, it'll create an interesting piece of leverage for them. Let's move on and talk about the Senate runoffs. And to be honest, in some sense, very little has changed since the last time we talked about the Senate runoffs. Uh, We as we get deeper into this race, you see basically the same strategy being executed on all sides of both of these runoffs. Uh, these are going to be very expensive and very negative campaigns. Um, particularly notable is that Reverend Warnock is now the subject of intense negative criticism from Kelly Leffler in a way that Warnock was not during the jungle primary stage of this race because Leffler and Collins were fighting it out. Now Leffler is, you know, digging up quotes from old Reverend Warnock sermons. She's trying to connect him to uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who was a uh, a notable figure uh, and a notable point of criticism of Barack Obama during the 2008 election. Um, It is, you know, across the board, the criticism of both Warnock and Ossoff is, is pretty dark. And you see very little positive argument from the Republicans for themselves and why they should be elected, and pretty much all about how the Democrats are going to bring the end of days if you if you send Ossoff and Warnock to Washington. Luke, one dynamic that we're going to continue to see is, but the Democrats and the Republicans are basically running as package deals, it seems unlikely that the, the votes in this state would split and send one of the Democrats and one of the Republicans to Washington. It seems likely that either both Dems are going to go or both Republicans are going to go. What do you think about that dynamic of, the, of both sides of this race campaigning as a package deal and largely making these, these negative arguments the centerpiece of their GOTV strategy?
0: Uh, before we dive into the Senate races, I do want to just confirm the fact that there is an, one other race on the ballot. We have uh, Daniel Blackman, who is the Democrat challenger to Bubba McDonald uh, for the Public Service Commission in Georgia, which is also very important and we should try to talk about before January 5th. But um, that race is, as you can imagine, significantly quieter uh, than this one. So I, I, I also imagine that I think all three of them go the same way. Um, you know, and I, I would be really surprised like if Ossoff and Warnock wing and then Blackman doesn't, but the, I mean the, uh, on the other hand, cause I just want to hit this real quick and then come back to the main points, but it's just like Biden one by like 13,000 votes. That is a very, very small margin. So, I mean, I could see it happening just based off of that, but that, that I just, yeah, I just don't see a lot of people doing that. I don't, I'm not sure. So anyway, Talking now about like the Republican messaging here, I mean, this is something, this is a dynamic we've been talking about and exploring that I am really, really interested in seeing not what it means on January 5th, but what it means two years from now, because I think both parties are really working to define themselves right now in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. And what I mean by that is I feel like both the Republican Party brand in Georgia and the Democratic Party brand in Georgia is changing right now and has been changing because we are really, really stable for a long time. And basically the Republican Party has the social values of conservatism and chamber of commerce, economic policy, like we are going to keep your taxes low, we're going to do a decent job at education and we're going to get out of the way and with deal we had criminal justice reform. But that's it, right? Like it was very very like inoffensive, bland singer right Republican politics that you know was was not the stuff of um activist grassroots excitement you know, political controversy, it was really just boring Republican governance, right? And, and, you know, there was lots of heated debates and lots of big fights about this kind of stuff. But, like, it was not Sam Sam Brownback in Kansas where we're cutting the entire budget to zero and, you know, craziness. It was just, it was boring. It was boring Republican politics on the economic policy and some crazy stuff on the social policy. But even that was avoided in a lot of ways, right? Although, and, Luke,
1: I, for one... Still love the peach pod deep cut of the opportunity school district.
0: That's true. Yes, that and that was. I mean, the again, but that, like that's my point, though, right? Like we had it this. Is. We had an hour long episode about this incredibly wonky policy idea for the state of Georgia to take over, like you know, school districts that were in you know trouble, right? Like the fact that that was a big political debate in this decade, like two or three years ago. What was it? Twenty sixteen that that happened. I think. The fact that this was a debate that was the most contentious thing in the state of Georgia's history felt like it is striking to me. Um, and so like now what the Republican Party brand is becoming, because like we have, to, I, I, I'm really starting to think of this. I, I actually blame Trump for this evolution. But like I'm starting to think about this in the terms of branding, because if Trump is good at one thing, it is branding. He is good at branding himself and he is good at branding his opponents. Now, is it always a smart branding? No, but he's good at branding. Them, it breaks through, right? And so the thing that I'm thinking about now is for the next two months there's going to be uncountable millions of dollars spent in the state of georgia both by the campaigns and their allied groups to brand the republican party brand john ossoff brand rafael warnock brand Loeffler, brand purdue and right now what the republicans are spending millions of dollars on is yes 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 branding the democrats as being radical but also branding themselves as that's what they care about and that's what's really important, because as you've mentioned, they are really not doing the positive negative balance that most Georgia races have had, because like most of the current right, previous races, and again, this is not unique to to them, because like even Purdue in 14, like he had stuff he wanted to do and he was excited about and he talked about like this is pure negative and a lot of it is unquestionable racially tinged messaging when it comes to Warnock because when they are taking his sermons completely out of context, which is the main Loffler ad that I am seeing right now, and it's one of those things where there did not need to be any context for what uh, what, um, Jeremiah Wright said in in those sermons that were used against uh, Barack Obama for most people in the country to find them incredibly offensive whereas as i'm watching these ads as someone who's sat in many a pulpit and listened to many a pastor be fired up about something most sermons take you on a journey a journey in which one sentence cannot define that sermon and it's just so unquestionably obvious to me that the clips they are using are so out of context that we don't even know what he's talking about, whereas the next sentence could be completely refuting the premise of the, the previous one, because that's what you do in sermons. And so it's just it's so frustrating to me that this is what they're choosing to use, but it just comes back to the fact that. That we may have mentioned this on the show, I've heard it in a couple places, so I'm pretty sure it's it's either true or very close to true, that right now Raphael Warnock has the highest favorability ratings of any of these four candidates. And what's so clear they're doing is they're just trying to throw every negative thing at the wall they possibly can, and just see what sticks. And it, I mean, the, the funniest part about that to me is the fact that the person who told us this was going to happen was Raphael Warnock. <laughs> who ran a great fun ad with a dog and is now running more ads with his dog. Um, and I just I just think it's it's fascinating that that's what they're spending their millions of dollars doing.
1: Yeah, if you haven't seen this ad, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, this is one where it's definitely beneficial for you to watch it instead of us to just let you listen to it. Reverend Warnock is on a walk with his dog, telling his dog about the fact that Kelly Leffler was going to throw a bunch of negative stuff at him. And he keys in on the same point that we've been keying in on that, like, it's amazing that Kelly Leffler has no positive case for herself, which is just, you know, I mean, Luke talked about the branding and what they're trying to do. Just the fact that that's not happening is still kind of astonishing to me. Um, but he it's it's a good ad. It's a funny ad. So so check it out in show notes.
0: Yeah, well real real quick too on the leffler thing. I have seen a positive Leffler act and I think the thing that is like so fascinating And it's only because this is the only one I've seen, right? Like if there was a bunch of other ones, this would not be as big of a deal. But the only positive ad that I've seen for her is one that mentions her like giving millions of dollars to some charity, which is just like highlighting the fact that she's completely out of touch and has very few positive things to run on is the fact that like, you lucky, lucky people, I am so nice that I give my money and my time to you. Like, that is the tone of the ad. And it's just, like, the the tone deafness of her campaign specifically is, I mean, fascinating to me. And even if she wins, like, I really look forward to Dr. Bullock or whoever in Georgia politics writes the, the book on this campaign eventually because it just seems so incredibly out of touch and her brand just does not feel very good to me and runoffs are weird and so i honestly think that this fight we're having and these ads that are being ran mean a lot less for that runoff than it does two years from now um and and i mean that is just going to be something to watch in in the state and i i really really do not know how it's going to turn out for them because i feel like it's going to make it very hard for them to pivot in the future and so, looking and looking at the Democrats now, the thing that I've been fascinated about is just how much Democratic messaging has changed. And th- I mean, this is something we've talked about before, so I, I'm not going to relitigate the whole case here. But I, I just think, but uh, Ossoff is really doubling down on yes, there's about to be a national, uh, nationally elected Democrat president, and that's a good thing, and I'm going to work with him um, because. Previously, you know, God bless Jason Carter and Sean Dunn, love both of them as people and candidates, but they just ran away so hard, so hard from Obama, so hard from the National Democratic Party. And so to me, it is fascinating that in that short amount of time that Democrats are running right now on, yes, Democrats have won national power and they need a little bit more. And because that is just so alien to the campaigns we've seen of the past. And so uh, let's listen to this ad that Ossoff just put out uh, about that. Look, the only way to beat this virus is to give our new president the chance to succeed. I'll work with Joe Biden to
1: empower the medical experts, to rush economic relief for families and small businesses, and invest in infrastructure to jumpstart our economy. But David Perdue says he'll do everything in his power to make sure Joe Biden fails, just like he tried to do with President Obama. I'm John Ossoff, and I approve this message because lives are on the line. Jobs and businesses are on the line. So let's get this done.
0: And so what what I'm really going to be interested to see, and, and this is where I'd love you to give us some thoughts, Kyle, because I've been dominating this this section, um, is I, want, I really wonder how Democrats campaign in two years because this seems to be a tone and message that is a bit more rooted in the reality of what we are facing in the state of georgia and reflecting the reality that biden won on this message of like getting stuff done calming everyone down you know taking the virus seriously and like the virus hopefully (laughs) you know god please will be gone by 2020 but like the economic consequences will not be and like the country i imagine will be recovering in a lot of ways but there'll still be some coattails of the virus and uh the implications there and i just really don't think republicans are going to have as easy of a time of changing their messaging and calming things down and maybe that'll work maybe being fired up and angry will be the more effective play here but I really think this campaign, even if not successful, is really laying out a playbook that Democrats could follow in the future of trying to get things done, trying to calm things down, being smart governance party, which for a long time in Georgia, the Republicans had a monopoly on that, because I feel like the the strength of the Republican Party, basically, you know, 2010 to 2018 um, was basically being the party of we won't lower your taxes and we won't screw up the government and we won't do anything you don't like. And I I feel like they're starting to lose that brand a little bit and take on more of this populist anger brand. And so, I I mean, do you, are you seeing what I'm seeing here is this is a potential successful path forward that that goes beyond this political moment? Or do you think the two parties in Georgia are more likely to revert to their mean and go back to the arguments they're making before Trump?
1: Now, I don't think that they revert to their mean. I think that this is a trend that will continue to be on. Um, but to me, the challenge is what are races in two years going to be about? Um, if the virus is, God willing, past us by that point, we may still be in a, a slow, a challenging economic recovery. And to me, this raises the stakes of the two races that we have now. Because if Joe Biden and a Democratic House are blocked from making the most significant efforts that they need to make to fix the nation's economy following the pandemic, we're very quickly going to turn the political conversation from accountability, from accountability for Republicans handling of the pandemic to accountability for Democrats handling of the economic fallout from the pandemic. And I think 2 years 2 years ago in 2022 is going to feel like a lifetime ago when you get back into another campaign season. And so I think that we're on this trend, but does this trend result in success for Democratic candidates in 2022? Or do you, as Democratic candidates, face these headwinds of now you've got to defend a President Joe Biden on the stump, and what strategic decisions do Democratic candidates make in that moment? Do they return to sort of sidestepping the president and trying to create their own brand, or do they tie themselves even tighter to President Biden in the same way that Republicans have tied themselves very tightly to President Trump? You know, and... Democratic, the Democratic base and the Republican base are very different. You know, I don't know that a middling economic recovery under the moderate choice for the Democrats for president in a state that still has a lot of Republican voters, if all of that is going to drive Democratic voters to the polls, or if their enthusiasm is going to be down in two years. And, you know,
0: I think there's just like so many different implications in that that we have to wait and see, honestly, because, you know, if if there's a lot of things not getting done because of the Republicans um, in two years, then like that's a very different environment than we found ourselves in. 2010, because when Democrats had unified control, if you were unhappy about what was going on, like there was literally one party to blame. Whereas I think Democrats, even in a 50-50 Senate, would have a pretty good argument because the vote will be so incredibly tight that you know we could be doing more if the Republicans weren't holding us back and making us fight for every single thing in, in a uh, in a way. And so I, I I I personally am on the side of I think running away from your party's standard bearer does not work very well for many people. I mean, I hate that we didn't really have anyone try it on the Republican side this year to see how they would do just as the, you know political science experiment. But I mean, looking at the vote results and the tough time Democrats had in the Senate, it seems like they made the right political choice, if not the right moral choice, because it's obviously not the right moral choice to stand by Trump. But by standing by him, a lot of senators did very well in their races and won and they got all the benefit of not being trump with all the benefit of trump's voters still voting for them uh by not running away from him and you know i don't know if jason carter michelle nunn would have done better uh if they had you know fought for what president obama was fighting for and supporting him but you know i mean a lot of ways with as much polarization as there is now i think it makes a lot more sense for Democrat candidates in Georgia, as tie of the state is, is to just say, look, like I'm a Democrat. I think what Democrats are doing is the right policy choices for Georgia. And I understand not everything is going well. And and that but the thing we need to do is to push harder on our agenda, not modulate, you know, and try to adopt what the Republicans are wanting to do. Because if you believe that, then why don't you just vote for Republicans?
1: I would say that it's that kind of context could be favorable for state Democrats if if national politics kind of takes a back seat in the 2022 elections. I mean, I think it would be easier for a statewide gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams, to drum up democratic enthusiasm for her campaign and to sort of rerun an anti-Trump playbook holding Trump accountable for all of the governance failures during his administration to run that kind of playbook against a governor Kemp who has uh, been criticized heavily for his response to the pandemic um, and who in passing the, the heartbeat abortion ban bill is going to, you know, bring up yet another um, another subject that motivates and galvanizes democratic base voters. And so I think it would actually be to Democrats benefit if 2022 was less about national politics, particularly for Democrats in our state, was less about national politics and a referendum on where we are in the Biden administration and more a referendum on the first term of Governor Kemp and the uh, you know, sort of erratic rightward turn he took in elevating Kelly Leffler in um the governance decisions that he's made, and in the failures on the pandemic, I think that that, that is an easier place to draw contrasts, and in a place where Democrats could argue from from a place of strength, versus, you know, having to drum up democratic enthusi- base base voter democratic enthusiasm for Joe Biden. Let's close with a quick discussion on the uh, district attorney's race in Athens. So this is another one of these races that went to a runoff, um, but important public service announcement to start this off. We have been talking about the federal runoffs and the statewide public service commission runoff that is going to happen on January the 5th. Very important for voters in the Athens area who would be able to vote in this race. This runoff is happening on Tuesday, December 1st. So make your plan to vote on Tuesday, December 1st. If you have not made that plan to vote already, the the PSC runoff was moved to correspond with the Senate runoffs in January. This is one of those races that was left in place December 1st. That date has not changed. So go vote on that day. Luke, we talked a little bit about this race earlier in the campaign season, but can you catch us up about who is in this race and what you see as sort of the main dynamics that you're watching for for this uh, runoff localized to the Athens area on December the 1st?
0: Yeah, so this race is in Athens, in Oconee County, uh, two counties I am intimately familiar with uh, from my work on the Jonathan Wallace campaign. And I mean, the first thing is, it's amazing this race is happening at all. Uh, there were innumerable court cases, uh, litigating the uh, governor's appointment powers and lots of lots of fun things that we, you know have discussed briefly on the show and should discuss some other time. But considering the fact we've, we've already been going on for so long here uh, that those should be put aside to the more important parts that one, you know, Deborah Gonzalez fought incredibly hard battles in court and got this election to be a thing, which is great because I am a fan of democracy and of people choosing their elected officials. And so I, I really have appreciated her tenacity to fight for people's rights in that area. What this race really comes down to is a it it was a weird situation because this was also a jungle primary, almost exactly like the Loeffler Warnock race was previously. Uh, There were less candidates, only three, Um, two Democrats, though, uh, Brian Patterson, who did not make into the runoff, was pretty much a Democrat in name only. He had voted in a lot of Republican primaries and pretty well known to not to be a hardcore democrat uh, but he ran as one and now it is a race between deborah gonzalez who is a former state representative and uh a democrat left in the race and james chafin who is an independent who definitely is more on the republican side of of things as well also voting a lot of republican primaries um the thing i think is really interesting to everyone in Georgia, not just us and not just people in the Athens area that I want to focus on with this race is, and we were kind of joking before we started recording, like, I feel like every episode of this show will have a subtext of like, who won in the January 5th race? Like, that's it. That's, it. that's all we're talking about for like three months. It's like, who won? Um, and there's going to be a lot of information out there that will not be very helpful to that question. This election next Tuesday will not be determinative by any means. But to me, it will provide some answers to two very interesting questions. Question one is what does turnout look like? Because my general thought is that the this is going to be abnormal runoff for for Georgia, because this is a runoff that will have way more money than any runoff, but also like it unquestionably, undeniably will determine who controls the U.S. Senate. it. And the last time we even had a singer runoff to my memory was in 08. And like that was, <laughs> it was just like Democrats were not very enthused about that race because we just won the presidency. We had control of both houses and our Senate majority was insane. And so like, it's just like, there's never been a race with like the implications being so high and so clear and there's going to be so much coverage. So I imagine turnout's going to be really, really high. I think this DA's race will show me a little bit about how the different bases are motivated and i say that because like there is a lot of republican antipathy towards deborah gonzalez the reasons for that are pretty obvious a progressive uh latino woman like not not something that really makes republicans happy and also she is running on a very 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 progressive platform and so i imagine if republicans are in a place to Still be paying attention to politics and not completely tuned out. That the turnout in Comey will be quite high against her. The other part of this that's really interesting to me is that Democratic campaigns in the Athens area tried to make the right health decision based on what we knew about COVID at the time and did not canvass and really stuck all of our messaging to you know digital phones mail all of this not one on you know not one-on-one on one contact right and the science has made it a lot more clear that if you are outside if you are wearing a mask if you are distant from someone like you're you're pretty safe you're not hundred percent safe you're never hundred percent safe but you're pretty safe right and so they are canvassing now and they are canvassing quite aggressively and I I must give the Athens Clark County uh, committee credit i am helping them with this but they have actually started like an Athen- athens based and funded canvassing core is a really interesting program very few county parties have done anything like this that i've been aware of and like we're gonna be canvassing crap out of athens both for this race and for the second runoffs and so i'm gonna be really really curious if that makes a difference Um, because the turnout in Athens was way lower than I thought it would be in 2020's general election. It was way lower than it needed to be uh, for uh, both my my candidates, but also for just, you know, democracy. And and so I'm really hopeful that we can take away from this is that like canvassing matters and that like one-on-one engagement matters and engaging the community matters. And so I'm really hopeful that the turnout will be good in this race and that these efforts that we're putting into it pay off because I think that's good for democracy if you know talking to voters actually makes a difference um so I mean that's what I'm watching and that, those are the key things I think I'm going to be really interested in with this race uh I, I don't think it'll be determinative by any means like <laughs> not if Deborah wins that means oh Ossoff and Warnock are going to win but there are some trends there that I think will be really really fun to watch
1: the other thing I think is this is a race that does have real policy stakes. And the one bright spot for Democrats at the state level, at the state and local level, really, in the 2020 election was that they flipped five other district attorney seats. And if Deborah wins this, they will have flipped six in this cycle.
0: Well, no, they've not flipped it because the, the old district attorney was a Democrat.
1: Okay. Well, even if it's not a flip, he, it, is, but, it is. So certainly it is a, a it is
0: a win for like progressive prosecutors because uh while he was a Democrat, he was not a progressive by any means. He was a you know very, uh, very very moderate DA and and followed typical DA procedures in the South. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, so I think that that though does stand as sort of an interesting test of democratic enthusiasm for these progressive criminal justice reform ideas whether or not those will get people out to the polls and that is becoming an issue that progressive activists are increasingly interested in and um, one that they feel they can make substantive policy progress with when you do, you know you can make this progress in relatively conservative areas by electing district attorneys who will put into place different policies will handle their offices differently than more moderate Democrats or Republican district attorneys have. And you can make that progress even if you're in an area that has a conservative state legislature that hasn't put some of these reforms on the books. Um, so, So that is sort of the policy stakes of that. Now, whether or not in this crazy year that we've had that those issues are on the radar of many voters in a runoff that is not the big runoff, not the runoff for control of the U.S. Senate, but it is a separate one on December 1st. We'll remind you, go vote on December 1st. Whether or not, amidst all of those factors, this race draws any turnout, you know, it's interesting for its implications on the Senate race like you talked about, but it's interesting on its own in terms of whether or not Democratic-based voters care to show up for a candidate who's campaigning on these issues. Um, and so that's, that's another thing that I'm kind of watching. I think one thing that I've noticed from Deborah's campaign that I did not notice from other district attorneys campaigns is she's been pretty savvy about getting attention for this race. You know, she did organize a lot of media around her challenge to the state law that almost wiped this race off the books this time around you know that was a point for her to elevate not only her platform but but what she was doing to keep democracy on the ballot for people in the Athens area um you know and and so we you know heard a little bit about this race sort of just through the grapevine just watching social media and seeing what democrats were talking about in a way that we didn't hear about some of the other DA races um and so that's something that I find interesting you know, it is still one relatively small DA district in a relatively progressive area of our state. So it's hard to draw out too many trends. But, you know, that is what makes this race and the outcome of this race interesting um, after next Tuesday's vote.
0: I would push back in one place, the district as a whole definitely leans progressive. And like in a general election, Deborah, usually would walk away with this district or any Democrat would have. Um, and I think it's really the jungle primary that confused people. And the fact that we didn't get a litigate out the positioning of the Democrat candidate in a primary is definitely a, a part of this. But the district as a whole, while not reflective of the diversity of the entire state of Georgia, it does actually have a, like a pretty decent amount of diversity. Like there are parts of Oconee County, some precincts act like the most rural counties in the state. And then there's some more suburban areas of it. And you have know, some more urban areas, nothing compared to like urban areas in Atlanta. But I mean, there's some comparisons that can be made. So I, I, I still think it'll be really, really interesting to see what it looks like. Um, I, I You Definitely can, and I probably will read too much into it., um, but I, I think it's worth watching for sure. Um, and I, i'm I'm just really, really interested to see how it plays out.
1: All right, so we're gonna keep an eye on that race. Uh, make your plan to vote in that race on Tuesday, December first, if you live in the Athens area and you haven't voted already. Um, If you have not requested your absentee ballot for the January 5th runoff for the Senate races and the public service commissioner race, do that. Be sure that you uh, find a way to make your voice heard. You know, elections are not over as our listeners I'm sure know very well. Um, And that's going to be it for us. Uh, We're going to take a pause until after Thanksgiving. So we hope that you all get some rest, get some time to to recharge and, and to spend some quality time with loved ones. Um, I am going to go rest. I am going to go sleep. Luke, I hope you get the opportunity to sleep. Maybe Oh, I, w- I will not
0: be doing that. I, w- I will be uh, working on my finals and uh, preparing for that. Well, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs>
1: yep. <laughs> on last, note, last of radio. On that note, we will talk to you again soon. Go vote. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.